Good morning again. Our scripture passage this morning comes again from the book of Psalms as we carry on with our uh, Psalms for the Soul series this summer. And our passage this morning is Psalm 38. As you're turning there, you'll note that Psalm 38 is a lament. About half, or sorry, about a third of the Psalms are laments. Uh, What is a lament? It's calling out to God for deliverance. Uh, it's taking a situation, whether it's suffering, whether it's sickness, whether it's injustice, whether it's your own sin, taking that situation to God and saying, God, would you, would you deal with this? Would you be merciful? Would you show me what you're doing? Would you give me your mercy and, and grace? And so these are situations, as we've found through the Psalms, that are, are common to us. We are commonly in situations where we need to lament. And specifically, this Psalm today is a, a penitential Psalm. What does that mean? It's a psalm of confession. There are about seven of them in the psalms that are really focused on bringing our sin to God. When we're guilty, when we're sinners, what do we, what do, we do? How do we take our guilt to God? How do we bring that to Him and ask for deliverance? So that's our, our route through this psalm this morning. Would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 38. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the days I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all of my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stands far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear. In his mouth there are no rebukes. For you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boasts against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to Psalm 38, would you guide us? Lord, would you bless this psalm as we study it, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to confess even our sins and turn to you in repentance more and more this morning? Lord, would you use this psalm powerfully in our lives? Would we see where we are guilty, where we see, would we see where there is hope and salvation? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together this morning. I ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. When was the last time you said, I am wrong? 
like you, you said it about yourself, not, not me, that you are wrong, I am wrong. When was the last time you said that? Maybe it's been a while, probably shouldn't have been. We're all wrong more than we probably tend to admit. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in a public library. Now, this isn't in Bernie. It's nobody in this room is involved in this, this situation. Um, walk, we're in this library with one of my daughters, and I uh, sort of overheard, it was a small library, this conversation around the circulation desk. Somebody had come into the library to send a fax. Now, I don't know if you've sent a fax in the last decade, but it's, it can be kind of finicky, especially if you haven't done it frequently. And so there was a problem. There was an individual trying to send a fax, a librarian helping them, and they kept calling the person who was trying to receive the fax on the other end. And it wasn't working. Um, it was a sequence of machines not being turned on and missending. I don't know all the details, but what was interesting is, although they were fairly good-natured, none of them ever admitted that they had all made mistakes in the process. There's always somebody else. No, we'll call them. We'll see. They're, they've got something messed up on their end. And it was, it was sort of humorous to watch this, this interaction over a fax. But there, there's something about that that I think is true of, of you and I as well. Um, we're very reluctant to admit that we're wrong. And yet, what we'll see in this psalm is that all of us are not just wrong, but we're actually guilty. We're actually sinners is what we will see through this psalm. David is not mincing words. He's very quickly coming to the point where he says, I'm, I'm a sinner. And that's where this psalm begins with us this morning. That's why we read Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, to remind us this morning of God's law, that there is a holy, righteous law that God has given to us, and that all of us in this room, whether we believe it or not, are, are guilty of breaking that. And so we're, we're guilty people, and we are even sinners. How do we begin to move towards what this psalm offers us? Another way of asking that is, how do we deal with our, our guilt? How do we actually deal with the fact that we are guilty sinners? Even if you've been around the church for a long time, and you know the gospel, you know that you're a sinner, sometimes I think underneath that, we haven't really confronted that we are guilty people. Maybe we sort of push aside our guilt we say, oh yeah, I know everybody's a sinner. Even if we know we need to repent and confess and all those things, we, we sort of push it to a side. Or maybe we, we just sort of reject the reality that we truly are sinners. Maybe tacitly, maybe subtly, we've, we've found ways in our lives to really not understand that we are sinners in need of God's mercy and His grace. Or maybe you, you really do know that you are a sinner this morning. You feel that profoundly. How do we move towards something that looks like hope, from our guilt towards hope. That's what this psalm offers us this morning. And what we'll see is sort of an internal dialogue, David with God sort of wrestling with the reality of sin and all of the aspects of sinfulness and brokenness in the world. How do we move through this? Martin Luther, when he was writing about the psalms, said this, that they are words that rhyme with our life. They rhyme with our life. What do you mean by that? There's something in this psalm as we read it that we say, this is, this is me, this is you. We need God's mercy and his, his grace. We have an outline for you in your bulletin. Another way of outlining this is simply to say there is a, a, a cause or a, a, a sickness, there are symptoms, and there is a, a cure. Let's begin with sort of the, the cause, what's underlying all of this that David expressed. He begins in verse 1 and 2 with this calling out to God, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He speaks of God's arrows in verse 2 that have sunk into him. 
Elsewhere in the Psalms, we've seen a picture of a divine warrior who is God who often stands to bring things to right and brings peace towards David. But here, David sees that sort of reversed, where God is afflicting him. God is pointing out something in David's life. And so David describes it in this way of, Lord, do not rebuke me or discipline me in your wrath. David knows what the root cause of all that is going to be said here is, and it's his sin. David is a sinner, and so he knows that God is coming and rebuking him, confronting him, and even disciplining him in his sin. God is getting David's attention, as it were, and saying, David, you are a sinner, and there are consequences for your sin. Now, what's the context here? Well, we don't know the specific sin that David has committed. We don't have that. We see from other places in Scripture that David was a sinner. He made some atrocious decisions, and we see that reflected in, in Scripture. But we also know that here in this psalm, David is not coming to God for the first time. This isn't a sort of a, a situation where David has never heard of God and his mercy and his grace and his law. David knows God. And so now David comes towards him as one who, who knows God's character and also knows his own sin. To use New Testament language, David is dealing with indwelling sin, sin that is still sort of remaining after he's confessed and come to God for mercy and for salvation. The context here is more classroom than courtroom. It's more discipline, more instruction, more pointing to righteousness than a courtroom of saying, David, you are guilty. But there are still consequences that David deals with. It's similar to what we see in Jeremiah 10, verse 24, where it says this, the prophet calls out to God and says, correct me in justice, not anger, so that I may not be brought to nothing. God is in the right here. David doesn't mince words. David doesn't sort of try to get out from under God's verdict on him. He knows he's a sinner, and he says, God, would you discipline me, and would you discipline me in a way that is not true to your wrath and anger, but according to your love, as we see in Hebrews 12, verse 6, where God says he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. David knows the cause of all of this. Look at verse 3 with me. There are three things going on here. There is David's sin. There is God's indignation or wrath against sin, and then there is this lack of soundness and this lack of health in his bones. As we put those together and follow through what verse is saying is, verse 3 is saying, is that David is, because of his sin and because of God's fitting indignation against his sin, his fitting wrath against his sin, is experiencing this lack of soundness in his flesh and lack of health in his bones. Now, there's a lot as we read through this that reminds us of physical sickness. Uh, David will describe his, his reality as wounded, as sort of having a plague on him. And some have read this and thought, well, David is actually sick, and God is sort of bringing sickness into his life to instruct him of that. It's possible, but I think as we read through it and see what the focus is of this, this psalm is that he is describing his guilt, his sorrow over sin in such a graphic way that it sort of manifests itself in physical symptoms. So pressed down by guilt is he that he is experiencing pain and sort of this crushing guilt, this heavy guilt that is on top of him. As verse 4 says, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. He knows what is true. He knows that his iniquities, his bentness, his, his crookedness, not sort of just sort of crooked, but bent so far that he's going in the opposite direction of what God would have is such that it's pushed down on him. He's crushed. 
It's all because of his, his sin. To use some sort of older language, it's a sin-sick soul, one who knows his sin and is so cognizant of his guilt, so aware of his guilt that it feels like sickness. And all of this is sort of joined together. And we'll see other points in this, this psalm where David doesn't just talk about his sin, but all of sort of the injustice of other people treating us wrongly because of sin, their sin, and the realities of sickness. All of this is together, but, but central in the middle is that David's awareness that he is a sinner. And there's something refreshingly honest about this. David knows, as Galatians 6-7 says, that God is not mocked, that what we sow, we will reap. He knows this reality in his own, his own life. And this is, this is maybe a little counterintuitive to how you and I talk about our, our sin and our uh, lack of holiness according to what God would have us do. I, I don't know if you've looked at um, corporate apologies recently. We like to make fun of these, don't we? I read, read a few this week, and there's, there's, a, there's a couple phrases that come up again and again. One is, mistakes were made. Now, that's, that's a pretty smart way to apologize for something, right? Mistakes were made. It's an admittance that somebody somewhere did something wrong, but there's no actual accountability for that, is there? Mistakes were made by somebody, probably not me. Or I saw this one uh, in advertising campaigns. If it's sort of, they thought they had this really brilliant idea and then they kind of launch it out and everybody is sort of horrified by this commercial, they say this, we missed the mark, right? We were trying something different, but we just kind of missed a little bit. And it's funny to laugh at those things because they're not true apologies, they're not true guilts, but you and I, I think, often use similar words to talk about our own sin and our own guilt. We say, I was, I was hungry. We say things like, I wasn't thinking. We say things like, I'm sorry that that hurts you. I'm sorry if anyone was offended. Now, you might have noted that that language, missing the mark, is actually a biblical definition of, of sin, right? We, we kind of go towards God's righteousness and we miss it. But sometimes when we think about that in our sin, we think, okay, I, I missed God's righteousness, but I only missed it by about two degrees, right? If I just corrected slightly, I'd get on, to, on target. Biblically, missing the mark is not getting close. It's an act of rebellion of sort of moving yourself to shoot to a totally different target. And saying, here's God's holiness, here's what is good, right, and perfect, but I'm going to shoot over here. That's what David realizes. He doesn't sort of try to couch his sin in some sort of mitigating language. He realizes that he is a sinner. He has missed the mark, not simply because he tried hard and failed, but because he is one who is in rebellion against God. He doesn't want to follow God's law. Sure, there are moments where he has sort of attempted to follow God's law and things haven't gone well, but here he knows that he is sin. It is his iniquities that are over his head pressing him down. And David shows us that we need to talk about our sin and be aware of our sin in a biblical way, a way that reflects what is, is true and accurate, that we are sinful people. We have fallen. We are rebellious. We have turned away from what is right to what is, what is wrong. And this isn't just a, a momentary action. Some of us might think of repentance as, I repented once a long time ago of my sin. Now, is that sufficient to save you? Yes, but does it reflect the reality of living with a covenant-keeping God who, who moves towards us? No. We repent of our sin again and again as this restorative relationship with God is, is growing more and more apparent in our lives. Martin Luther, when he penned the 95 Theses, 
Maybe you've, you've read through these. He posted these statements that were sort of a, a description of what was wrong with the church in his day. Now, the very first one, he said this. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're sort of constantly repenting of our sin and hoping that we just keep repenting and, and hope we repent enough for our sin. No, it's talking about an awareness of the fact that we break God's law, an awareness of the fact that we need God's, God's mercy. And so all of our life, as we read through Scripture, is reflected with this attitude of repentance. We deal with our sin not by blame-shifting, not by sort of trying to fix it or becoming defensive when it's brought to mind, but not by denying it, but actually confessing fully. To look at God's law carefully and seeing where we have, have fallen short, where we have rebelled, where we have gone away. We're sorry not just because we got caught, not because we sort of messed up a little bit, but because we actually rebelled against God and seeing that at the center of our, of our sin. We did something that is really sort of odd this morning. You probably did it and you didn't realize how odd it is. But we confessed our sin together. There's over 100 people here in this room. We, we, we together said we were all sinners. Right? That, that's a fairly remarkable thing. I don't know if you grew up in a church that, that did that regularly. I didn't. And, and when we do that, there are times where I, I look around and it's, it's sort of remarkable to see us all doing that that we would come and we would open our mouths and say, I'm, I'm a sinner. There are things I should have done this week that I did not do. And that is an act of rebellion against God. There are things that I, I actively did this week that I know I shouldn't have done. And that, that is falling short of God's righteousness. And sometimes maybe we get so used to doing that repentance together that it is just sort of a, a, a prideful mark where we're like, hey, yeah, I, I know I'm a sinner and I know God's grace and we sort of, we like the fact that we know this and do this together. But, but think about how profound that is, how, how healthy it is for us to do that week in and week out that we would, like David, know that we are our sinners in need of God's mercy, in need of God's grace, that we have the humility to actually open our mouths and say, I've been wrong this week. The beauty is that we can be first repenters, people who lead in repentance, because like David, we know God's character. We repent not without hope, but in hope because we know about Jesus. Even as David, though, confesses his sin, even as he knows the cause of it, he experiences some symptoms. We see this crushing agony in verses 5 through, through 14. Talks about wounds festering because of his, his foolishness. He hasn't been wise, as Scripture calls us to be, but he's been a fool, and it's led to, to suffering in his life. He's utterly sort of pushed down, all the way down, as far as he can go, prostrate all day, I go about mourning. It's almost a poetic picture of what David hasn't done. He hasn't been necessarily quick to confess. Now has brought him to a point where he has been pushed down fully as he suffers. His sides are filled with burning. It's almost like some, some back pain he's experiencing. Again, he says, there is no soundness in my flesh. Nothing, that's, that's a holistic picture. Nothing in him is pure. Nothing is sound. He feels feeble and crushed. And in the midst of this suffering, he, he groans because of the tumult of his heart. Literally, that sense of groaning is of roaring like a lion. Not in some sort of aggressive, victorious way, but in sort of a, a desperation of being wounded, and, and he groans, the tumult of his heart. Verse 10 is, is almost difficult to read. His heart throbs. 
Strength fails. The light of his eyes, sort of his life itself, is, is almost gone. He's isolated. He talks about, verse 11, where not only his friends, but also his family have sort of left him. They've treated him like he has a plague, like he has leprosy. They've said, unclean, I don't want anything to do with you. Friends and family have left him. And in this place of vulnerability, verse 12 tells us that people have sought his life. People have sort of stepped in and and tried to take advantage of him. David here reflects the complexity of of sin. He knows his own sin, but he's also alluding to the reality, as he will in verses 19 and 20, that sometimes even though he does what is right, he still experiences people pressing in on him. Sometimes he experiences sickness and pain, not because he's a sinner, but just because that's what happens in a fallen and broken world where there has been rebellion against God. And he takes all of this sort of pain that he experiences, and what does he do with it? Well, verse 9 says it is, O Lord, all my longings is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. He does it here, and he'll do it more in verse 15, where he takes all that he is experiencing, and he actually turns to God with it. And and if we've read the Psalms, we know David is going to do that. We know he's going to turn towards God. But there is something remarkable in that. The very source of what David is is experiencing, this affliction, this discipline from God over his sin and now his guilt that he is experiencing, causes David not to turn away from God, but towards God. That's instructive to us. He waits in this posture of silence, not speaking, not defending himself. He waits for God and turns towards him. Remember uh, a while ago, I was doing youth ministry in St. Louis, and this seventh grade boy came up to me, and he was telling me about his week, and we were having a conversation, and he mentioned that he'd gotten in trouble this week. I always remembered this, this conversation. He'd broken something. I forget what it was. I think it was a window or something. He'd been roughhousing, and he broke something. And I was expecting the story to go, and he kind of gets to the point where he's talking about his parents finding out and the discipline that he was going to encounter and receive and what that was going to be about. And what was remarkable is this little boy said these words, and then my dad showed me grace, which was really, and, and this isn't like an instructive, you should parent this way all the time. We can talk about grace-based parenting later. What, what, he's, what he's talking about here, though, is this moment where this boy knew that he had done something wrong. And instead of hiding it, instead of saying, you know, I, I'm not going to tell dad about that. I'm going to blame it on my sibling. He, he could have done a lot of things. He had other brothers. He could have passed, passed the buck. But he confessed. And as he confessed, his dad expressed grace. It's always struck with me because I think so often when we look at authority figures in our lives, even God himself, when we're guilty, our first response is not to turn to God. It's to fix it. It's to whitewash it. It's to pass the blame. But here David does none of those things, and he comes and he turns to God, and he says, God, I'm going to be honest with you. He takes all of what he's experiencing, even though he doesn't have it all figured out. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's suffering. He knows that people are are leaving him. He doesn't have all of it figured out, but he says, Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? All his guilt, all his sickness, all the injustice he experiences, and he takes it to God. And, And you and I can do that too. The guilt that you walked in here with this morning about what you said this week, about what you thought about other people this week, things you watched, your guilt over failing as a parent, the decision you made at work that that was easy but probably not right, 
all of those things, the guilt that you carry in with you this morning can come to a psalm like this, and this psalm can teach us how to express that back to God. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. And I feel the the weight of that. If we don't turn quickly to God, our tendency is to turn to any number of other things. We have all sorts of other things that will help us numb that feeling of guilt and responsibility, whether it's food, whether it's various aspects of sexuality, whether it's just simply watching more stuff or trying to be more productive to sort of atone for what we've done. We, we can turn to those things, but David helpfully shows us here that he turns straight to God, turns to God, and he says, all of my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, says this, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's what it means to repent, to turn from our sin towards God out of a grief over our sin. What David describes here is, is fitting. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10, Paul describes writing to the Corinthian church a letter that caused them grief. Uh, and he caused them grief not because he was mean-spirited, but because he pointed out their sin. And he said, I wrote that to grieve you so that you would repent, that you would have a, a godly grief, a godly sorrow over your sin. And David exhibits that so well for us. A godly sorrow over our sin, a sorrow that says, I, I know I'm wrong. Now, we need to be careful here with one thing. We can sometimes take a psalm like this and say, man, I've got to be more sorry over my sin. And that, that's true. All of us need to look at God's righteousness, His holiness, and see that we are more sinful than we probably ever imagined. At the same time, we are not saved by being sorrowful over our sin, by the amount of our sorrow. We don't need to somehow reach a, a degree of sorriness so that we can then merit our salvation. Our sorrow over sin is designed to push us toward Jesus. How much sorrow over sin do you need? Enough that you realize that you're a sinner and you repent and you turn to God. That's the degree of sorrow that you need and what David shows us here. It's a counterintuitive move to move towards the one who is rightly angry at our sin. It's not something that we as humans do naturally. What happened when Adam and Eve, when they were confronted with their sin? They hid. Even David, later in his life, he, he sinned with Bathsheba, and, and what, did he, what did he do? He needed to be confronted in his sin. Nathan the prophet needed to show up and say, you are the man, David. You are the one who has sinned. And so God's word this morning confronts us, too, in our sin and says, you are the one who has sinned. You are the one who has fallen short. And, and yet, in the midst of that, David knows more than what Adam and Eve knew, and we know more than David knew, that we can turn to God freely as he offers us this hope for healing. We see this in verse 15 as he waits for the Lord. But, you, o Lord, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. David knows enough of God's character that he doesn't sort of think, I've got to atone for my own sin, but he goes to God and says, I'm going to wait for you, for your mercy. Even as he's in this point in his life where he feels he's almost about to fall, everything is pressing in on him. What does he say in verse 18? One of the simplest, clearest confessions in scriptures. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. He knows what is at root of his guilt, his sin, and he confesses it. 
his iniquity, his, his bentness, and he comes and he says, Lord, would you be the one not to forsake me? Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. He goes to the one where he knows he will find salvation. Maybe you know this story. It's of a physician from Australia. His name is Barry Marshall. He won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 2005. Now, what his research involved was stomach ulcers, if you've ever had a stomach ulcer, but he was, there was a prevailing school of thought up till his research that said that stomach ulcers were caused primarily by stress. And so there wasn't really a good treatment for them. You just sort of suffered through them. Now, what did he, he think? Well, he did some research, and he, he realized that he thought a bacteria was causing stomach ulcers. Now, so he did some research for about two years, tried to do it on animals, and that only worked so well. He really needed to test this theory on, on humans, but that required them drinking some of this bacteria, and nobody wanted to do it. So after a few years, he finally reached the point where he says, I think this is it. I think this will be the cure. And so what did he do? He drank it himself. He drank it. He talked to his wife, figured out the dosage that he was going to take, and, and started monitoring his symptoms. And sure enough, he developed stomach ulcers. And he found that antibiotics would treat it. And he, he solved, so to speak, this, this issue. Reminds us of something, doesn't it? Reminds us of something that the early church very quickly realized when they read Psalm 38. When they read Psalm 38, having seen Jesus go to the cross, they said there's something in this psalm that reminds us of Jesus. It begins in verse 12, where we see that people are laying snares. They seek to hurt, speak ruin, on treachery, all of this stuff sort of on somebody who is innocent. Verse 13 and 14 give us a picture of someone who is, who is silent, the early church quickly realized that there is something in this psalm that is about Jesus, the one who, so to speak, drank that poison, took that sin, who experienced what David experienced. He took on sin, though he knew no sin, so that he would be sin for us. It gets even more clear what Psalm 38 is doing and how it's pointing us to Jesus when we read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. That sorrow is the same word in Psalm 38 that is translated as pain. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, or plagued by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What we see here in this Psalm 38 is a picture of David's appropriate grief over sin, but also the healing and the solution to our grief and our sorrow over our sin. And the hope for us as we come and find repentance that by his wounds, we are healed. As you and I take our sin to God and ask for repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the hope we have this morning, that as we do this, God is faithful and will forgive our sins. Maybe you feel like David feels, though. You feel abandoned. Maybe, maybe you know some of that truth. You know some of the reality that you're a sinner and you have God's grace and you've experienced that and you're even growing, but you still feel forsaken. It's remarkable that, that Jesus on the cross used the words from Psalm 22 where he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those moments where we might be tempted to feel forsaken by God, what do we do? Well, we go to the cross. We go to the moment where Jesus felt forsaken, and we know through that that ultimately we are never forsaken by our Savior. 
Ultimately, the gospel always is true and is enough and gives us this reality of God's salvation given to us. And as we understand that, it moves us to to true repentance, to coming and repenting of our sin, turning from it, and moving towards the righteousness that God offers us. I end with this question, though. What stops us from praying like David? What stops you from praying like David? As you think through your sins, as you think through the places where we have all missed the mark in rebellion, where, where would we, why would we not pray like David? Maybe there are a few reasons. Maybe we're afraid of what people might think. Maybe we're afraid of being discovered. We're afraid of what our sin, the pain it might cause other people. But I think more than anything else, the reason we don't take sort of the scalpel of God's word deep into our hearts to find our sin is we, we up underneath all of that don't really think that God's forgiveness is, is truly enough. That we, we tend to struggle to really imagine the reality that when we take all of our sin to God, He freely and fully forgives us. And when we know that, when we know that He freely and fully forgives us, that His grace is enough, as David says here, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation not some abstract, distant salvation, but his personal salvation that ultimately was won for even David by Christ. When we know that is true, then we can freely forgive our sins. Then we can know that God has really forgiven us. When we gather and confess our sin on Sundays, we don't do a, an absolution of, of guilt. Uh, we don't believe that sort of we have the, the power to say that. It's God's word that does that, but that nonetheless is what we see in and through Scripture that because of what Jesus did, we are absolved of our sin. Whatever it is, whatever depth it is, the gospel has the power to take that guilt, to transform us. As we come and we quickly confess our sins, we are free to move from our guilt, to turn from it and leave it behind and rest in the finished work of Christ. Let me end with this from Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent then and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you show us the wonder of your gospel? Lord, if there are some here this morning that that know they are sinners and have never confessed that sin, by the power of your Spirit, would you work in their hearts to see the beauty of the gospel? Lord, if we're here this morning, we know the gospel. Would you help us believe it more? Would it be more beautiful and believable to us? Even as we see David confess and his trust and his waiting for your, you to act and his reliance on your character, would we live that way? Trusting your grace, trusting your mercy, being quick to repent because your gospel is free and full. We ask this in your name. Amen.